Welcome to No Room for Phonies. This is podcast number 25, our one year anniversary, my one year anniversary of um, No Room for Phonies. And today I have invited um, a couple of my friends, my husband Charles, who is my friend, and my friend Wendy, who has been, both of them have been on the podcast before, to have in light of, you know, what's going on in the world right now, a conversation about diversity, acceptance, and racism. And uh, I know that we are three um, Caucasian people having a conversation about diversity, acceptance, and racism, but that's part of what I wanted to do because I think it's important that we do that. And um, I just want to, uh, we have like four goals for our conversation today. You can both say hi. 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 Um, I didn't want them to think that I was talking in a vacuum here. Um, I, first of all, I, I, I think the main goal of today is to improve the conversation about racism and to make everyone feel like they can be part of the conversation and to understand privilege and entitlement and how it relates to feedback and growth and where we make mistakes, particularly as white people around racism and to recognize our conscious and unconscious bias. So to me, that's what goes on in my head that I'm not even aware of that causes me to act and say and think yeah. a certain way. Yeah. And then the bottom line for me is always to figure out how to take action. Because if you're just going to sit and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and never do anything, then they're really... Talking is great, and I think you have to talk a lot, and I think you have to talk while you're taking action and change your action based on what you talk about in your conversations, but I think it is important at some level to take action. So I thought it would be good if we each talked about kind of who we are and what are our values about justice and opportunity and community and equity if we just kind of shared that piece so that we can see that we're sort of, I think we're kind of all on the same page about that and how we, what our what our own values are. And so I'll just start. Because I believe that I am like, I have one self. There's no difference between me as my inner person and my outer person. So what I think and, and um, am on the inside, I try to be on the outside. So... And I, I am a truthful, authentic person. I feel like I'm kind and generous. I feel like I stand up for what is right and that I, I, I don't mind doing hard things and, and I try to stay optimistic and compassionate. I'm definitely passionate about certain people. I have aspirational and hopeful thinking. I try not to live from a place of fear and anxiety and I... As you know, when I was in my profession as a teacher, I really pushed to support everybody in re reaching their potential. I like to think that I try to hold institutions accountable for what they do and in, in order for them to be provide opportunities and equality and responsibility for ending you know, discrimination. So that's kind of the standpoint from which I and that is not a perfect way that I am. That's kind of, that's, that's where I want to, to be. So that, that's me. So I don't know 
if you want to just say, yeah, I agree, or if you have some things that you want to... <laughs> I think we should each be able to say... Yeah. It's, no. Yes, there's no agree or no, disagree. No, you are, but you are... How can are... I say this is all when you... you... <laughs> no, this, that's me. So yeah. you, I just thought it would be good if everybody sort of shared their perspective. Madly trying to think of how to encapsulate this as briefly and as yeah no I think we have to um you know when we were exchanging notes earlier yes I I like to think that I strive for consistency in my inner and outer self and in my approach to everybody I am fortunate enough as a teacher to have been exposed to the academic information about unconscious and implicit bias. And I'm really fortunate because I, I get to share those findings with students as well. Um, in my circle right now, this is where my head is at because we are going through it in some of my classes. So, and it, it never ceases to amaze me that um, I know some things about myself I know that I'm, I come from privilege. I know that I have not had to struggle. Um, I'm very fortunate and I, and I feel fortunate, but I've run into people who um, follow that whole approach of if you work hard enough, it's going to be good for you and it doesn't always work that way because not everybody has the same access. And as an educator, and we share mm -hmm. this, as an educator, we recognize that and understand that. And so our job is providing that equality. Um, I struggle daily to make sure that my biases don't come out in my interaction. And I really, really am trying to listen more. Yeah. Because that, I think, is the biggest part of my conversation. Okay, Charles, your turn. Do you have any sh values? <laughs> I have many values. <laughs> They're wonderful values. So, well, my inner self is uh, very analytical, always trying to suss out and use my radar to figure out, to read the room, if there is a room to read in. <laughs> now it's trickier to do that. Um, but to observe... Um, I've also always been uh, a burden bearer, for mm -hmm. lack of a better term. So there were times I remember being as a child where the enormity of the unfairness of what was happening to the people around me would hit me so hard that I would be crying and not being able to sleep. And I'd talk about it with my mom and dad, and I don't think they understood where this came from, <laughs> came from or why I was so upset and burdened and so growing up I think I've numbed that a little bit just to be able to cope with um, you know because you can't I can't fix the world I real you know as a child I wanted you know I knew I couldn't fix it as a teenager and in my 20s I thought I could solve everything and was arrogant and made lots of mistakes um, because of that and then just with age, I think that has tempered a little bit, but there is a social fairness uh, warrior in me, but the social justice 
warrior sjw acronym that is applied to people i don't it does not match me that's not the type of quote-unquote warrior i am and um the other thing that i think the a value that i learned from my father and my grandfather was um as far as women were concerned is having a very sensitive uh, radar to being treating women as equals and being highly respectful and inclusive and here i am a cisgendered white male in a discussion <laughs> about racism and so i know that that brings a whole bunch of baggage that i might not say that i've ever espoused this baggage but i happen to have that baggage because of who i am and the society that i'm in so i can't just shed it off i have to recognize that um but that's a case of knowing yourself and what you bring to the, the table, right? Yeah. And that <clears throat> always makes the discussion mm. better because who we are and what we're struggling with is on the table. Yeah. There's also a, a key element that if you're looking to know yourself, I think it means that you're looking... I don't want to say better because it's not that knowing yourself, okay, I'm bad. It's, no. it's an improvement, it's a personal growth moment, it, however you want to phrase it. But in order to move forward, and I guess if uh, forward is probably the wrong word as no, well, I, to, to change, yeah. you have to recognize where you're at. Otherwise, there's no... Well, there's something some... called the good enough principle. Exactly. So I'm good enough today. Yeah. I am good enough. Because if all you're doing is saying... Well, I'm terrible and oh, I can't do this and I can't do that. Like if you're never good enough, then you're never good enough. And so then you're in this negative state, which does not promote growth. So I'm good enough, but tomorrow I'm going to be better. Well, and so, that's why you do the goal setting, right? That's why right? you've been sharing the goal setting. Because if we don't have, first of all, the recognition of this is where I'm at. Second of all... Uh, this is where I want to be, mm -hmm. and and that present state, yeah, desired state, and you've got to then map out. But my present state out. isn't bad. No, unless I'm a murderer or something, which I'm not. But, but even then, it's but, a truth. But it is your present right? state. Whatever yes. it is, you are where you are right now. Sorry, we cut you off. It's okay. I Two just... women. Sorry. We'll no, cut. has I'll... nothing to do with it. <laughs> Sorry. You're just polite. <laughs> no, well, I was going to say the other, I guess, inner value, external value, though, too, is um, sometimes to my detriment, I've always been a seeker of harmony. And so, but that sometimes means that nothing gets done or you get treaded upon because you're searching for harmony rather than, I don't know how to say it. I think you said it really well because some of what what we face in the diversity discussion is um, to have that conversation continue. There have to be two different opinions. There have to be open-heartedness so that we are willing to, first of all, share where we're at. Second of all, share that we want to change. And there are, like if, if you don't recognize that there needs to be a change, then that's a, a, an even bigger problem. If we don't recognize that 
police forces need to change, that we Healthcare. have systemic racism, mm-hmm. then Education. we're never going yeah. to go anywhere. So it has to start from that point. And, and if we say, no, I'm just going to, oh, you, I'm right. going to, my purpose is going to be to make it okay, mm-hmm. then, then that's how we stay where we're at. Well, and, we, and if we start to look at things as like um, white bias or fragility or whatever you want to call it and racism and all those things as it's never going to change, it's always going to be this way, then there is, there is no conversation to be had. So we have to look at it as here we are today, this is what we desire to be. And we can only make that change like I have to make that change, you have to make that change, you have to make that, like everybody around us has to make, has to recognize it. Yes, as Margaret Mead says, never underestimate, yes. right? The power of a small group of people to make change. Right. And there is, there has to be a group of people. It's very difficult to make change on your own, in your own life, totally. But even in your own life, those people around you have to support that change. Yeah. It's like the idea of the guy that gets up on the stage and starts dancing and everybody ignores him, but then one person joins him yeah. and then the next person and the next person, all of a sudden you have a dance movement and things are changing. So anyway, we're getting on to the next part yeah. of the thing. Is there anything <laughs> else? That's Sorry, the whole point, we can... isn't it? It's a fluid yeah. discussion. But I mean, one of the biggest things is how do we keep the conversation going and actually put on the table the counter narratives that are around racism that that continue to come up. And I'm just going to like the narratives we tell people as a white society, that we are a democratic society, that we are good, moral, decent human beings egalitarian relationships are valued truth and justice should be valued we live in a merit meritocratic society anyone who works hard enough can succeed in society equal access and opportunity are hallmarks of society people should be colorblind and not judge one another by the color of their skin racism is abhorrent but it is now a thing of the past so that we're basically in a post-racial area but those are the narratives can that we we tell. Yeah, there was a lot of them there. Can we go back and look at one or two at a time? <laughs> yes, but I also think we need to also hear the counter narrative, right? Yeah. yeah. That we live in a society that advantages some groups while disadvantaging others. Oh, specifically. Like, so well, from, from the white perspective, we see, oh no, everything's fine, but the counter narrative is there. It is ordinary white people, not the white supremacists, who do the most harm to people of color. Whites often do not treat others with fairness and respect, but in prejudicial and discriminatory ways. White people seem adverse to seeking the truth about racism and engage in self-deception. Equal access and opportunity are falsehoods. Meritocracy is a myth. Colorblindness is impossible and it perpetuates inequities. Racism is alive, well, and thriving in current times. So I'm just, I'm just, now we have, those are the, (laughs) those are the voices, right? And, 
And we are the white voice, whether we like it or not, okay, to so some degree, right? Like, I don't know how to say that. So we talked about this a little bit before, and I think it is essential for there to be a conversation specifically with white people because as, as you pointed out in one of your points, if we don't recognize that there is a problem, and please let us not wait until people are killed. Like, this is crazy. I know. If we don't say, no, stop, there is something wrong. The police force does not need more weaponry to deal with this. Maybe they don't need more funding because we're asking them to do things that they shouldn't be doing. Maybe we should recognize the historical background of the police being set up to catch slaves that went away. Like, that's insane. Well, and I was thinking the other day as if I was um, a prime minister or a president right now, what would I do? And I would try to bring down the the emotion like and give people a forum to actually for people to start listening to each other and understanding each other so do you think the truth and reconciliation hearings were a good start specifically for canadians to accept our historical oh my gosh atrocities and and start that healing process and maybe start moving toward do we need the same sort of thing on a, a i don't want to say larger scale but on a different scale to be able to deal with the racism that occurs that is systemic in canada well and yes i do i i yeah. I, I don't know here's my ignorance and naivete but i don't know very many indigenous people and i don't have somebody that I could access directly and say, so how did the truth and reconciliation hearings change things? What has happened as a result of them? Do you, like... I don't think that enough. Certainly the recommendations are a good start. But in order for that to really move forward, I think as a nation, as a, as a citizen of Canada, we should each take on that responsibility. Like there's a huge in educational responsibility and and we're not geared to education we're geared to 140 characters or um, a, a video clip or a picture that we can like yeah. and I mean I, I don't I'm not a big fan of social media because I think it cheapens the conversation but there are good things out there on social media yeah um, and well, there are good things in in the general conversation you know trevor noah has some of the most insightful commentary yes, absolutely on what i um would like to you know like if i i i like the idea of the town hall approach to um communication where people get to express their ideas and other people have to to listen but i think <laughs> That's the key word. but yeah. i think it goes deeper than that right because communication is really about seeking to understand each other and are and being okay with how open i am about what's bugging me or what i what i see and feel so there are a couple of things. even if it's i'm uncomfortable 
Like, Sorry. even if it makes the other person, like, we have to be able to be better at being uncomfortable yes. with what we hear. And just because... And not go, whoa, 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 I don't do that. I'm not this, I'm not that. Right? My, I, I actually heard the other day, some of my best friends are black. And it was like, oh my gosh. Yeah, that's a like, counter that narrative. That's so... exactly what they're... But I have to tell you, five years ago, maybe even three years ago, I'm not sure that that would have entered my head as something that my my listening skills are deficient. My approach is I need to grow in this. So listening, if we're going to set up town hall kinds of discussions, then we need to have very clear guidelines, not unlike discussion board guidelines for online classes. Mm -hmm. Do this, do this, do this. This is an area of inclusivity. Don't use... No, but there's, it's like protocol, right? Yes. For whatever. But I think that there are, like, I don't even think at my level of trying to understand or thinking that I try to understand that I don't even understand the construction and maintenance of gaps and erasures and silences and forgetting and unknowing when it comes to people of color or mar any marginalized or person. Or, uh, yeah. I look at it from my perspective of being a woman in society, but I can't say, okay, that that's the same as being a black person in society or that's the same as being an indigenous person in society. So it's a difference between empathy I mean, maybe that's part of it. Maybe it opens up my mind to thinking, okay, there are people that are, like, I don't know. I don't I know why. I think it's so yeah, difficult. I, like, part of me watches the conversation, think about myself, think, I think about myself and my community, my the people I know. So if I, if I think about my white acquaintances and friends, like, we're busy working, taking care of our children. Um, some of us are more status-oriented and pursuing status and whatever. So there's a whole, like, quote-unquote, busyness around that. Somehow we manage to have all this time for social media and, and all that other stuff, and, you know, less time, it seems, for reading and thinking. And But then I look, okay, so if I look at the uh, um, BIPOC community, because they are so many like majority are in a disadvantaged location they are spending their lives their time trying to survive and they mm -hmm. don't have the same opportunity so their battles are longer and harder and you know it's hard to say okay it's harder than my stress because everybody's stresses are different but basically we don't have time to anymore to listen to each other so much of but I don't, I don't think that's true, but I think we always have this excuse. I don't have time to think about. I don't have time to, you know, and I don't know, as a white person, I think I probably have more time, dispensable time, than a lot of other people. And just starting to read about this topic and think about this, I'm realizing more and more how, you know, how can we get the town halls together? How can we get people to listen to each other and talk with each other? Maybe we don't even need to start with town halls, right? Maybe yeah. we start with communities mm -hmm. of five or six people. But just like what you said earlier about 
um, thinking about ourselves when we're listening to somebody else. I was thinking about myself. No. <laughs> no, I was thinking about myself. But the first key of, of listening to somebody empathetically is to not say, oh, yeah, when you tell me about your dog, Mm-hmm. I tell you about my dog and it, yeah. it's that innate I want to make that connection and I get that as a communicator that that's what's going on but the reality is because we are more and more siloed and especially in the pandemic looking to ourselves or our immediate circle we're not as interested in listening to somebody else so we're not going to say oh man that sucks are you okay and ask the kind of question that will elicit more information because that well and that is that's one of the things that i have read a ton about what are the right questions that we ask to close the gap so um you know from a mature standpoint of a person who is a, a mature growing person you are seeking unity no one is seeking you know like i don't want to seek divisiveness so what are the what are the questions that i want to ask in order to um and what do i have to know about myself in order not to be defensive and judgmental about stuff so I just want to go back to one other thing that Charles said first about the amount of time people spend doing things. And one of the, I'm pretty sure it's the World Bank, one of the ways the World Bank measures how how good you have it oh, yeah. for lack of a, mm-hmm. a yeah. good way of describing like that, it. That happy, that happy measure that they said this is the most happy countries or the most, whatever. Yeah, first world, second yeah. world, third world, yeah. really. The distinction yeah. in that is how much time somebody has to spend thinking about basic necessities of food, mm-hmm. water, mm-hmm. and shelter. Mm-hmm. And so um, communities where you have to spend half your day mm-hmm. walking to and from a safe water source or like oh my gosh yeah the fact that you mm-hmm. can turn a water tap on and get potable water you may not like the taste mm-hmm. it may not be cold enough for you but in welland we have some of the best water in ontario mm-hmm. at a minimal cost really mm-hmm. yeah no. so and when think about that i we need to talk to with about what do you need to to survive? What do you need in order to um, have a better sense of self? Well, and and I think I dealt with this as a principal when I was when I was um, uh, in charge of a, a, a inner city school, not inner city like New York City, but inner city, mm-hmm. where children were coming to school hungry. Yeah. So I think there has to be a balance between. Yes, we have to meet those basic needs. But my point there was, we can't work at life from a deficit model. We have to make sure that we are also believing that those kids can achieve what every other kid is in every other school in every other place in Ontario. So yeah, we add the other layer of they get a muffin, they get a pancake, they get lunch, they get whatever. We do that, but that doesn't mean that we sit and say, well, you know, they don't have anything to eat. 
they don't have this then so therefore you know if they're not achieving as well on provincial um, standards and what and I, we can debate oh. that for whatever but I'm just saying we still have to believe that with the right time the right encourage the right time kind of teaching that those kids are as capable as anybody else and I fought that fought that yeah right because they come from where they come from we can't expect oh as much gosh. as them from them I fought that systemically systemically that's wrong mm. because guess who was teaching them a bunch of white middle class people very, very comfortable people very well, comfortable people I mean we've we've talked about it you know the, the individuals in in my community that I know of who are biopic, who have gone through schools and who were told, uh, you know what, you're never gonna, you should be going into the trades section mm -hmm. right now, going to the um, applied or euphemism, you need help, without even paying attention. Just Sir, Ken on... Sir Ken Robinson is a perfect example exactly. of that, right? Exactly. Where he, they're basically told, no, you're you can't. There's no way you can make that. Yeah. So it's not only demotivating them; it's also relegating them to this is the spot that you're in, and you don't have the same platform that the rest of us have. But oh, too bad, you're going to just stay in that. Well, you hear it once, and you might be outraged by it, but you yeah. hear it over and over and over subtly. You just, Man, why fight? Why fight anymore, right? Mm -hmm. It's yeah. the harmony thing. Or when you, and, and it's not even just in our education system, it's in only seeing ads for um, Barbie, white, only seeing ads for with white people in cars. Okay, so eventually you're gonna get the message that only the privileged white people mm -hmm. are going to be able to afford. Well, and I mean, and I think there's a, a difference in the conversation between, oh, you know, everyone has biases to there is an issue with systematic racism in our country. And those are two different, right? They are. They are different conversations, they are. but they're related. Yes, they're well, completely right? related. Because I, you know, I'll see something, oh, you know, everyone has their biases about something or whatever. But no, what we have to recognize is those biases contribute to the systematic racism that are not changing in our country and why does it not change i would say fear i think ignorance in the true ignorance, sense of the word fear. most people first of all it takes a lot of time and thought yeah right and we don't have a lot of time and thought and and Trump has got us, or Trump has got most of the Western world thinking about if you work hard enough, you will succeed. So the correlation to that is if you're not succeeding, then you clearly aren't up to the job. Yeah. You're, you're no, not doing you what you should, which then leads to the systemic world. Clearly, you're not there. Well, and I also think that he has everybody reacting at an emotional level instead of a thinking level where yes. you are like okay wait a minute stop 
Like, this is just not about me feeling fear about, oh, whether this black... Like, when I see some of this stuff where women, that woman in Central Park calling, there's a black man, he's about to... Are you kidding me? Like, but that is... Your word of stop, I think, is probably one of the most important things we can remember. To stop and hear what's really being said and not react. Yeah. You know, and, and now we have a pandemic where the race inequalities that existed before are now exacerbated by cost-cutting policies oh. that affect some of the most precarious of our labor, you know, like... You know, I, I, I really honestly, you know, yeah. why is, why is the, you know, why are there more cases in certain places? Because those people have to go to work. They're not sitting at home teaching from home, making no. big money to teach from home. No. They have to get up every morning, go out into this and stand at Walmart. So... With people who are mad about having to wear masks, so they're going to mm-hmm. take their mask off and mm-hmm. pop on them. Yeah. Or, okay, so. So we've gotten into the topic of systematic racism, healthcare, prosecutorial decision making. Um, I have a really good example of systematic racism in terms of the healthcare. When I worked, when I lived in Saskatchewan back in '82 to '84. Um, I broke my hand and I went to the hospital to get it set and within half an hour of being there I was seen by the doctor and they set my hand. The first thing that I said to him was that the person sitting next to me in the waiting room was an indigenous man and he had his knee sliced open um, from a bar fight and I said to him, like, why are you taking me because like, there's somebody who was here before me. And the doctor said, if I patch him up now, he's going to go back to the bar and find the guy and hurt him. So I'm going to wait until the bars are closed. And I, I, I understand that. Like, I don't have an answer for that. Mm-hmm. No, I understand that. And I, that I don't feeling. know where to go with that. Like, if we made sure that everybody had a basic income and housing... Maybe that would be better. Maybe, yeah. I don't have an answer for that either because I dealt with that a lot too, right? And when, you know, you think, well, well, and one of the things that was the biggest thing was, well, this fam, these kids shouldn't be coming to Breakfast Club because their mother's home and they have, they're collecting ODSP and there should be no reason why they're not getting breakfast at home. Well, I'm dealing with the child. The parent problem is not my issue right now. It, I have to feed a child who's hungry. I don't care what the situation is at their home. But And really, if we went to a basic income model, then we would not have that stigma of, ooh, you go to the breakfast club? We would not have right. the insecurity. Well, and, and I'm sorry, but the attitude of the staff at that school yeah. was that those people were not capable of looking out of making them. good decisions. I or... think that's where the whole meritocracy yeah. mm-hmm. layer comes on. And I don't think some it was people just deserve that no. Mm-hmm. Some people deserve to be helped because for whatever reason in that panel of judges you know, they are more worthy of help than help others. Than others. And they're forgetting yeah, the fact that panel of judges in our head that ooh if that's happening, then clearly. 
Well, and the idea that um, we forget that those people are fourth generation, fifth generation of a systemic problem that has never been dealt with. Which is geared to keep people on yes. welfare. Yeah. Or largely because the people who I want welfare talk, don't want to... I want to talk about... Charles no, and I want... Who work in welfare don't want to lose their jobs. Don't want to lose their jobs. No, absolutely. Right. Oh, I see what you're But so that takes that, me... Again, that's an assumption on my part. No. I'm really sorry. Yes. But we watch the 13th. Oh, yeah. I haven't watched it yet, but you... Oh. oh, well, then we can't do spoiler alerts, but... We won't do spoiler alerts, no, but every... Okay, so for me, for me, like, this whole discussion surfaced with, you know, the mentioning of the White Fragility book online, mm -hmm. and so then I had to read it, and um, I'm almost done. <laughs> ten, spoiler, yeah. Ten more pages left, no. so I'm good. Um, but, um, <clears throat> we'll say can't remember where I was going with this. <clears throat> well, spoiler alert about 13th. Oh, about 13th. That's right. So but, when I read White Fragility so far, you know, so I, I see the problem, whatever. I just, at the end of that book, I still feel a sense of hopelessness. And there's still a big part of me where, okay, I'm not quite understanding. It's very academic. And then I saw the 13th and I'm like, oh, okay, now... <laughs> Now I understand why we need to do something and the Black Lives Matter movement has a very, very legitimate uh, um, cause for, for being. And well, the incarceration of people. Insane. Like, and how, and if you listen to the Michelle Obama podcast, she talks about black women and how they have to be a certain way because their men are incarcerated. So they are who they are because of what has happened to their men in terrible, horrible. And then we watched the 9-11 kids, the kids oh. that were in the room when they were, when, and it was a poor, it was a poor area in Florida. And I know we're talking about the states here, but we also I also watched the documentary Being Black in Canada, mm -hmm. and the kids that were the kids that were interviewed for that, their statement was, "We have to work twice as hard to make it in society as white our white counterparts. We have to work twice as hard. I These are more than twelve yeah. to fourteen year old kids." And I think in even Can younger. I think in Canada we have the myth that Canadians aren't racist and we don't have the same type of racism as in the states. And I, I you're think right. I think we do. Have I think we do. I think there's a whole another flavor because we don't have the same legal setup and we don't have some of the same barriers that they do there. But on the other hand, I still think that we do have systemic. Well, racism. and I'm a, and I'm it just a... doesn't. I don't know. There's a like one. I mean, she says in the book, White Fragility, you're going to take um, umber with this uh, because I'm going to lump all Western whites together, including Canadians and whatever. I'm like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> I know, there's Canadians who go, like, no, 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 no. Some of my best friends And, you know, and, and I think it through. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm, I'll accept it in, in part that, yes, we all have the same, but... I do think that there's a whole 
another layer. And so part of my reason for feeling this way is I grew up in a third world country mm-hmm. as an expat, Canadian expat, and I went to school with other expats, many of them American. And even how they talked about our host country and the people from our host country, who were mostly brown tend- and then some brown towards black, um, depending on the mix, I, I would come home, my dad and I, like my dad would be floored and, and furious with how these expats who were here to help these third, the, the citizens of the third world country were so racist and denigrating and awful towards them. And I, I, and so I associated this with, well, we're Canadian, so we do it differently than American. But I think growing up, now, I think now, I think maybe it was my father's approach to it versus how some of the other families raised their children to think. Like, I don't know. Partly, I think you're right. Canadians have this, we're so much better than the Americans, right? Yeah. yeah. We do. Mm-hmm. And, But I also think that... (laughs) I Yeah, but then when I came to Canada and learned about our indigenous atrocities, I'm like, okay, we're not so awesome. No. (laughs) But I also think the other thing is you can't base your action on feeling. You have to base your action on fact. So I'm... As a person who was a, a principal, I loved the data that I received about my children, be it soft or hard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like the data and the data about the families that I had and the parents that I had. Were they parents who went to work every day? Were they parents that were home on ODSP? Were they parents that were this, were that, or whatever? And so I based my action not on how I felt about them, whether I liked the fact that they were this way or that way or whatever way. When I was at Parliament Oak, I had a lot of which parents, is a, which is a privileged very high in Niagara on the Lake. Sorry, Sidebar. I had parents that were home working from home before pandemic because that's what they did, and they were whatever their jobs were allowed them a lot more freedom, and they had a lot of money, and but their kids had certain issues because of that too. So you had to. Like, so instead of just saying, well, I feel that these people are just privileged and terrible and whatever, I just took the facts about their lives and made that into um, data that caused me to do a certain thing. How brilliant, Pam. So why are we not doing... So when I look at a, a story like the 13th, yeah. I say... There's a lot of data. <laughs> there's a lot of data there that should be instructing us on how we should be changing our systemic problems in our society. So in the end now, we're kind of at the point where we, we do want to talk about what's the end goal and how do we you know, influence others, what holds us back, and... I mean, if the goal is to create powerful conversational change that produces action in our community, then good communication, honesty, data, not just reacting from a point of feeling, but from fact, is going to make a difference. Not being aggressive necessarily. Listening more than... I agree with all of this. I'm not sure town halls 
are the best for No, I don't know. For a couple of reasons. Because people come out to town halls to just talk about anything. Yeah. Much harder to give guidance to the conversations. I think this kind of thing, as again, you know, we're, we're three white people talking about systemic racism. And the good thing is, we should be talking about it. We should be recognizing it. And, and now you're right. We need to figure out how to change it. Well, so, I think so. that when you talk about town halls, town halls almost a lot of times become a battle of perspectives. Yes. It's I want to get up and yeah. tell my point, and then the next guy gets up and hammers his point, and it's all very emotional. It can be very there's emotional. There's nothing wrong with emotion. And there's emotion. nothing, no. And, and the reason we're here is because we're emotional about the topic. Yes. But how can we move forward? How can we be better proponents of getting rid of the systemic racism? So do we choose one or two areas? Do we talk about making sure that there's fresh water for indigenous reserves? And do we each take one area that matters to us and work on that? Or, well, I don't think it's an either or. I think you... Well, and responsibility equals empowerment, right? So if you take responsibility for, for you know, community an aspect of something or just for your own uh, quality of your own thinking because your yeah. the quality of your thinking impacts how you behave if I think negatively if I um, feel like a victim or the bad guy or the rescuer that's all an, unha an unhealthy dynamic or the harmonizer yeah because really that is like I totally understand that mm -hmm. I don't want to make waves and like I'm not going to disagree with somebody I have a friend who's an anti-vaxxer and I'm trying to figure out how to have conversations no. with her so for and for me the harmony you know the insure the immature harmonizer is is that like brush it under the carpet let's just kind of gloss things over but I don't want to be a harmonizer that's glossing things over I want to now like for me I'm not a carry a sign protest march person but I, I sometimes feel if I opened up and talked about this topic with people who are, I would be judged and slammed for why aren't you out there? Why aren't you like protesting? Why aren't you like whatever? So for me, it's like, okay, what is my skill set? Well, in dialogue and conversation, I like to achieve harmony by having, by mentoring and guiding people, facilitating conversations through the uncomfortable waters. Because I have to do this every day of my teaching job because mm -hmm. I have people from different cultures in the same space and I've had uh, misunderstandings that are cultural that t to other people they say, well, that's a racial misunderstanding. I said, well, it could be deemed racist, but basically it's a cultural framework that are two cultural framework frameworks that are clashing. But I've negotiated with both parties by facilitating the, the discussion to the point where we did achieve harmony and understanding and acceptance. And that's at a scale but there of, is that's, a... Like, that's, a, that's like me and two other people. You know, so that's what I can do. But how can I do that in Canada? <laughs> like right. I keep thinking, there's this huge, you know, there's this huge country-wide. You know, I'm going to go back to a religious... Um, kind of example of yeah. this right when when I was a young kid growing up in a fundamental Christian mm -hmm. church I was told to 
go out there and spread my faith. Like I had to proselytize Convert. people. Yeah. And I think there's co some comparison here, right? Yeah. So um, I found that very uncomfortable. I, I found that very uncomfortable. We were given little pamphlets, the seven spiritual laws or the four spiritual laws, or I don't remember how many mm -hmm. there were, but there were, there were laws. And I was supposed to convert people. That was what I was supposed to do. So sometimes when I go on Facebook, I feel like that's what some people are doing with their, with their emotion about racism. They're trying to convert me into feeling that I'm bad and so therefore I need to change my behavior. So for me, it's, it, I always felt that in the religious context that I just wanted to live my life as a good person and have people go, oh, like, and I that, like that, yeah. That. However, that doesn't necessarily work either because, you know, you don't really see people, but it's through conversation where you are a listening, accepting person who knows themselves, knows their flaws, knows who they are, and comes across as authentic, that you can actually have an influence on another person because you can have an open conversation that goes somewhere without it being shut down. Yes, and use data to make the points not make the points, but to, I, I think we need to be finding out from one another. Why do you think that? Yes, because if you can't go, like when I grew up, going back to the religious thing, when I grew up to in that, if somebody said, oh, I went out drinking, everyone went, oh. <gasps> so now the conversation is closed. So instead of having assertive communication where you stand up in a calm and collected way and say, well, I... I'm just not a person who would go out and get drunk and then get behind the wheel of a car. Like, these are the things that I, but, you know, not passive, not aggressive, not dishonest. Your perspective is equally as important as mine, even if I don't agree with it. Yes. I also think it's really important we stand up. Yes. And say, this is not acceptable. Don't let, people, yeah. don't let people live with the illusion that their behavior is okay with you when it is not. And we have to say, I'm not comfortable with that joke or, mm -hmm. or language or term. Mm -hmm. Why are you using it? Well, and I, I think so, I've given this illustration before in a, where I was sitting at Knitting Club mm -hmm. and there was a horrible what I consider to be um, racial, slur. racial slur. And I sat because I knew that the people around me found it funny and I knew what they would think of me if I spoke up about it. And that for me was a big revelation about the fact that I am a... I need to acknowledge that I am a product of my cultural conditioning and I have inherited biases and fears and stereotypes about people and I wasn't willing to step up at that moment because I was afraid of not being accepted or whatever. Well, 
And that everybody yeah. commits racial blunders. We do. Not unlike committing mental health blunders, mm -hmm. right? Asking somebody who's depressed, Don't be how are you feeling? Is, yeah. So we need to confront with compassion. We need to educate ourselves and we need to listen. And we need to realize that we are good enough today. We're working at it. We're doing the best we can, but we are trying to be better tomorrow. And for those people, I guess, who listen to this and think, what business do these three people have to sit and have a conversation about it? You know, I, I, I hope that people who like disagree with us or think we need to learn something more i i actually hope that they step forward and and respond Please. to yeah. this in some way because well, and the other thing going back to how that fear that you felt in that in that situation i think now like at least the three of us we know that when we are afraid of something because we've committed a racial blunder or we want to be vulnerable and share that you know, oh, I really screwed up. Like now we have a safe space where we can sh share that with each other without feeling attacked. Like I think. Well, and, and hopefully give each other a little more confidence to not yeah. be afraid to say to somebody, really, I think it's about having that conversation and having that conversation with people who are involved specifically, directly, personally, emotionally with um, Black Lives Matter or any kind of movement to equalize the balance of being able to say, look, I'm really sorry, I'm probably going to make a mistake, but I want to know more. I want to do mm -hmm. better. And I think communication, mm -hmm. good communication, is, I, I said this before, is a coward-free zone. I love because that. Because fear zone. of the truth is the destroyer of honest and meaningful conversation. So if if you can't handle the, you know, that's, where is that from? <laughs> wait, it's from wait, a wait, movie. Wait, you Nicholson. can't handle the truth. <laughs> but it's true a lot about people. And, and I know that for myself, if somebody actually says to me, well, you're really this way. If I'm, I'm self-aware and mature, I'll go, yeah, you're right. I am this way. But isn't it about coming to a mutual truth? Like working together to get yeah. there? Yeah. And, and being selfless. Different places. Yeah. Being selfless and listening. Right? Yeah. So I think that ends the conversation for today. I certainly don't think it's the last time we'll be um, talking about uh, diversity and acceptance and racism and but I really hope I'd like that to have a whole podcast on on uh, the male female gender. Yeah, that'd be topic And I just thank you, Pam, for starting this conversation. I yeah. mean, we have talked about it. No, I just think before, it's important that thank you. I think that sometimes we, as the white, fragile people that we are, um, sometimes, and I don't like labels. We're afraid to even have the conversation. And I just feel like if we don't, we're stuck. Yep. If we're not talking, we're stuck. So thank you for listening to podcast, podcast, podcast 25, the one year anniversary of No Room for Phonies with Wendy, Charles and Pam, a conversation about diversity, acceptance and racism.